Um, I really agree that even though it might be blah 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 right now, that's because this is about looking towards the future. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of All About Energy, the podcast which brings you into the worlds of energy, climate change and sustainability. I'm your host James and as always I'm joined by an expert from the Centre for Energy Ethics at the University of St Andrews. Today my co-host is Dr Emilka Schirpeck, whose research takes an interdisciplinary approach to ideas of corporate social responsibility, especially as it pertains to resource extraction. In addition to this, Emilka is also the Centre for Energy Ethics Senior Policy Fellow. Hello Emilka, welcome to the podcast. Hello James, thank you very much for having me. No, the pleasure's all mine. And uh, especially so because today is a special episode. Uh, with COP26 in Glasgow earlier this month, we've decided to focus in on the intersections between youth and climate change. And as such, instead of a special expert guest later in the episode, we will be talking to two recent graduates of the University of St Andrews, Isabella Cuervo Lorenz and Georgina Steele, the winner and runner-up, respectively, of the Centre for Energy Ethics 3M Planet competition, which was run over the summer. Yes, in May 2021, here at the Centre for Energy Ethics, we have decided to organise a competition for our honour student. These are students in the final two years of their undergraduate degree working on their undergraduate dissertations. And we have invited all honours students whose dissertation research explores topics related to energy, climate change and or climate action to take part in a competition. The students were asked to present a compelling spoken presentation on the research topic and its significance to climate action to a non-specialist audience, and all of that in just three minutes. We received many entries from across the university and had a very difficult decision to make, but from the pool of candidates we have chosen eight finalists. Those finalists have received professional training from the University of San Andreas Public Engagement Team in how to present the research and record research videos and research presentations for broader audiences. From the eight presentations, the jury selected the winner and the runner-up, and I am very excited and looking forward to talking to Isabella and Georgina later today. And you can actually still check out all of our finalists over on the Centre for Energy Ethics website, and we'll provide a link to that on the page for this podcast on that website. But before we head into that, to bring a some sense of normalcy to the episode, we're still going to be starting off with a news piece. Well, actually, not a news piece. More of a series of surveys about youth opinions on climate. Fitting, considering the guests. Now, in the last couple of weeks, it has been reported in mainstream media here in the UK that... According to a Virgin Media O2 study of a thousand young people, and that's defined by them as individuals between the ages of 16 and 24, that despite 84% of young people saying they felt passionate about saving the planet, I guess implicit there is the assumption that the planet needs saving, 62% of those surveyed do not feel heard in the climate change debate. Now, I couldn't find the original data set used here. It was reported in The Sun and Express. But these findings do line up with a larger survey published earlier in the year by a team based out of Bath University. The second study asked 10,000 young people across 10 countries about the climate crisis. And the study has been open access published, so you can access it. We'll put a link on the podcast page over on the Centre for Energy Ethics website if you'd like to look at the full study. To be honest, there's too much here for a brief discussion, but I'll summarize some of the findings. So according to the study, 83% of young people globally and 80% in the UK believe that people have failed to care for the planet. 75% globally believe that the future is frightening. 65% believe that the governments around the world are failing young people and only 31% believe that governments can be trusted, and it's even lower in the UK, with 28%. Now, the countries involved in the study were quite diverse. The UK, Finland, France, the US, Australia, Portugal, Brazil, India, 
the Philippines and Nigeria. So this is not a global north study alone. This is fairly diverse. And the fact that the UK actually comes close to the rest of the world in this seems to suggest that there could be some significance here for how young people are feeling around the world. Now, what are your thoughts on the findings of these studies, Emilka? I think these figures are quite striking, aren't they? Although they're not perhaps surprising. We have been seeing it over a number of years now. Uh, young people becoming increasingly vocal about the importance of action on climate change, about the importance of sustainability. And from where I'm sitting, I've been observing those processes both through the formal university education. So we have increasing number of sustainability courses of, of undergraduate uh, teaching programs that very much focus on those topics, but also the sustainability curriculum being intertwined through a lot of other teaching and learning courses. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have young people organizing themselves outside of their education institutions, outside of their formal training to explore those topics and to voice their opinion and to urge some of the older generations uh, in the society today to take urgent action. So those figures are striking, but, I, but I'm not surprised. It's, it's something that has been in the process for quite a while. And I think around the COP26 and all the momentum that is building around those conversations, those things are becoming increasingly visible. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And you can really see the urgency in some of these figures that young people feel towards climate action. 75%, three out of four young people interviewed in a survey thought that the future is frightening. And what is frightening is the potential impacts on lives of feeling that way constantly and not feeling represented on top of that. I think eco-anxiety is becoming a real issue across the society, but particularly amongst young people and some of our colleagues here at the University of St Andrews have taken a lot of time and care to, to look at this process and what are genuinely you know, true, true feelings that, that people carry feeling anxious about, about the future of the planet. I am not sure how many people are aware of some of the more formalized young people's engagements in the debates about the future of the planet. So, for example, back in September, some 400 young people between the ages of 15 and 29 from almost 190 countries met up in Milan and they developed this Youth for Climate Manifesto. Have you heard about that? Uh, briefly, briefly, but why don't you tell our audience about it? So the Youth for Climate Manifesto is a really long and elaborate document and I would encourage everyone if they would like to, to, to look at it accessible online. But one of the main points it is making, it, it is asking or young people through the manifesto are asking for meaningful participation and youth engagement and involvement in all decision-making processes with implications on climate change, climate policy planning, design, implementation, evaluation. So clearly young people are sending a very strong signal here that they are worried and they feel they have things to say and they would like to be involved in conversations, in decision-making. Yeah, I guess the question is how you bridge that gap, right? We heard about in the first study that 62% of young people in the UK didn't feel like their concerns were being listened to by politicians and policymakers. So what is the best way to make sure that your voices are being heard is, I suppose, the question. I think it's a, yeah, it is a very good question. I am not sure if anyone yet has come up with a definitive answer, uh, but there is more and more activity, more and more attempts, more and more platforms that emerge in order to facilitate the dialogue and conversation. But I wonder if this is something our two guests today might be best placed to talk about, Georgina and Isabella, being two young people actively engaged in conversations about sustainability in climate. And with that wonderful segue, I think we should head into our interview with Georgina and Isabella, and we can let them use this platform to talk about their experience with climate change. In recognition of the importance of youth activism, 
and the important role which the next generation are going to play and indeed are playing in the fight against current and future climate emergencies, it is my pleasure today to, for the first time, welcome not one, but two guests onto the podcast. Both recent graduates of the University of St. Andrews and the winner and runner-up, respectively, of the Centre for Energy Ethics 3M Planet competition, Isabella Cuervo-Lorenz and Georgina Steele. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, hi there. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Not a problem. Now, just so that our audience can kind of put a name to a voice, this episode I'm going to ask the two of you to introduce yourselves. So, Isabella, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah. Um, hi, I'm Isabella Cuevo-Lorenz, and um, as was said, I'm a recent graduate of the University of St. Andrews, where I studied international relations and Russian. My presentation was about how intellectual property laws that are in the World Trade Organization's agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights impact um, food security policy and um, different forms of farming. Yeah, and hi there. My name is Georgina Steele, and I'm also a recent graduate from the University of St. Andrews. I studied geography and sustainable development while I was there, and um, my dissertation project was based on the study of small Scottish fjords um, on the west coast and looking at their surficial sedimentary carbon content to see if they presented as an effective store of carbon as a nature-based solution towards the uh, net zero um, goal of carbon in Scotland. I feel like as, as a person who who has been through this three-minute planet journey with both of you, I feel like I got to know you at the end of your academic journey through undergraduate studies here at the University of St. Andrews talking about your dissertation projects. But I would be really interested to hear how did you begin your academic journey into the world of sustainability and climate change? How did it all begin for you? Well, I kind of stumbled into the topic that would become my dissertation and kind of my passion for my fourth year, really kind of by accident. Personally, I'd always really been interested in climate issues and that was, you know, very prevalent in the schools that I went to and my community and it was always something that I cared about. Um, and I'd done like a little bit in terms of climate activism in my kind of first three years of university. I was at the big line in the sand that was organized in my third year. That was one of my kind of core memories of the, the pre-COVID university experience. But I think studying IR, somebody said to me the other day that when you study the social sciences, it's just, it's so depressing because all you learn about is how messed up the world can be and how bad it is and how hard it is to fix things. And that was definitely a theme that I came across in my studies. And then when I was trying to choose a topic for my dissertation, I came across all these kinds of like obstacles and legal obstacles, social, political ones. And that was kind of what started forming the basis for, for my kind of journey into research in sustainable development. I remember thinking like, how is it that this sustainable alternative to one of the biggest threats to climate change totally exists and it's existed for decades and decades, but it's not being taken because of all of these webs of obstacles that are so hard to unravel. Um, and that like really grabbed me and I did my dissertation. I fell in love with the topic and yeah, I hope to keep researching it as I go on. That sounds great. And maybe we should mention just for members of our audience who, who are not familiar with acronyms that IR stands for International Relations. Yes. <laughs> Georgina, how about the journey for you? Yeah, so similar to Isabella, I I became really passionate about climate change as an issue um, throughout school and my community. I learned a lot about it growing up. Um, my family was super informed and passionate about it, which sort of imprinted on me. And we were a very kind of outdoorsy family. We did a lot in nature and I realized, wow, this is something that I really want to protect. How do I do this? Um, and I realized it wanted I wanted that to be the course of my 
like the purpose of my life going on and when looking at a program to study at university I was I was applying to like things like environmental science and things like that in the United States because that is that's where I'm from and I saw that St Andrews had this program called sustainable development and I was like wow this is this is exactly what I want to do I want to focus on like helping communities to change to change their ways and and every level of governance from from people all the way up to governments um, and I thought, wow, this is this is kind of revolutionary that this university has it. So I applied for that um, and got in. So <laughs> I was then studying that and I added geography to it my first year. And I loved that kind of addition of the studying the physical sciences and what goes into changing those ways and helping um, to fight against climate change. And so when considering what I wanted to do for my dissertation, I, I realized that this climate change was sort of the the ultimate challenge. And I realized that kind of a way to like um, mitigate climate change was by protecting these ecosystems that sequester and store carbon and ecosystems that had been focused on so much were terrestrial ecosystems. And I had studied a bit of blue carbon and realized this was a whole untapped resource and um, that really there just wasn't enough research out there about it um, and fjords and particular were are considered a hot spot for carbon sequestration as they're as they're the most effective um, store of organic carbon based on um, unit of area so I realized there wasn't enough research there and so I delved into this topic as basically a way to start the conversation there was a, I was it was obviously all all remote I didn't get to go take cores and samples um, so it was a lot of uh, using um, geospatial investigation and to map these things and use comparisons and create my calculations that way so there was a lot of room for error but it was simply it started the conversation about how these smaller systems these smaller fjords which hadn't been considered been considered before um how effective they really could be in sequestering carbon um and how there it really needs to be more research and more management around these systems um, and so, yeah, that's how that's how I got into it. And um, I'm hoping that that my dissertation sparks further, further research and management conversation. No, that's both really interesting and different, but similar stories of, of how you can fall into your area of, of interest in research. On the one hand, slightly more more deliberately on, on your side, uh, from what it sounds like, Georgina, but uh, still not quite knowing exactly where we wanted to go and finding that. So that's really interesting. You both distilled your dissertations down to a, to a three-minute presentation as part of the, the 3M planet. I was wondering if you could, I guess, distill again for our, for our audience some of your main personal takeaways from the research that you've done. When you go through the whole process of a dissertation, you end up making it quite academic. Um, and so you have all these thoughtful, thought-provoking um, results for the world of academia, but they're not very approachable to, to the general public. I remember having to think, oh, wow, I really need to break this down because fjords as a concept are something that not everyone knows a lot about. And so essentially, I kind of started by saying they are, they are sea lochs and they're there are these kind of lakes on the edge of like a landform that have a sill at the end of it that um, promotes that uh, carbon capture from the water, from the ocean, as well as from land. So there, there are these these middle areas between the ocean and the land, um, and so there's there's multiple methods of carbon capture happening there. So some of the main takeaways you can see are that these are a highly, highly effective store of carbon because they're capturing every, all the kind of runoff from the terrestrial environment as well as capturing it from the um, marine environment um, and its, its whole structure um, of having a still, uh, the, the bottom layer of a fjord, it stagnates in a, rotational period that's different for each fjord but they um it promotes that 
sequestration. And so through my study, I compared it to other forms of carbon sequestration in other, well, other areas of carbon sequestration. And I compared it to terrestrial and other marine. And you can see that it was fjords were a way more effective store of carbon than any other Scottish marine ecosystem. And they were comparable to the large terrestrial ecosystems like peat bogs. So a lot of people have heard of peat bogs as a highly effective store. And when you put that into comparison for people, that fjords are equally or possibly more effective than and more in in certain areas as like the large fjords are more effective stores than peat bogs. It really puts that into perspective to show that there does need to be a greater level of research here and there there's not enough management around fjords at the moment in order to preserve this nature-based this this natural um, nature-based solution to climate change drawing down that carbon that we've that we've emitted we can bring it back into the soil um, and it goes into the long-term carbon cycle rather than the short term where it gets into the ocean and re-released which is really important it's just emphasizing that fjords are a highly effective um, hotspot for carbon sequestration, even the small ones. Which I suppose goes into the idea of making sure that we manage the land around these important parts of the environment and the, the carbon cycle effectively in order to maintain their existence as a carbon sink. Definitely. It's all, it's all interconnected. That's wonderful. And what about your research, Isabella? I definitely echo Georgina's statements about the process of, you know, turning a huge dissertation into a three minute presentation like that was it was a really challenging but really educational experience. And I think I I gained some skills along the way. My dissertation topic was very niche and very jargon heavy. There were a lot of acronyms and I remember having to explain it to like my family members and my friends and they would just be completely at a loss. It was really hard and I um, found it quite difficult to kind of narrow it all down. I think, Emilka, you suggested in our training session that just imagine that you're telling the story to a friend that is your peer and you respect them intellectually, but they may not be an expert on this. So how would you frame it to them? And so I practiced on a couple of real life friends and got some brutal feedback and was able to kind of condense it down to the most important points. I got into my topic because I got into the subset of international relations that's international political economy and the political economy of trade and investment at st andrews ir is is quite broad and so that's this very specific subsection of it that i was interested in so i discovered over the course of my research that there is right now in the world this almost standoff between types of agriculture we have large scale agriculture, which is, you know, it's commercial, it's very technology driven, it's profit driven. You know, the biggest aim is to produce as much as possible and in return to sell as much as possible and to keep that going. And it's mainly controlled and run by private sector powerful actors. On the other side, you have small scale farmers. You know, these are the typical farmers that we would think of, like mom and pop family farms using traditional methods. Yields are smaller. It's generally less technological, but there are a lot of upsides to it as well. What I realized during my research was that despite the fact that small scale farming is in many ways superior to commercial large scale farming, it's definitely more sustainable, it produces less waste, it uses less water, it's been described as virtually carbon neutral, there's less monoculture because each farmer's crop is a little bit unique, and a lot of traditional methods involve saving and conserving seeds with each year and exchanging with others in your community and things like that. 
these systems have been under threat by this kind of global system of international trade that decrees that crop strains and plants that are used in agriculture can be patented and owned and protected as intellectual property, which then means that the owner of these genetic strains and these crop species then has near total control over how they're used. This has, of course, lent, lent itself to very profit-driven, very commercial systems that have then kind of taken over the world because countries are being pressured to sign up to these agreements if they want to be part of the international trade community. And then that encroaches on the small farmers. And this is especially um, harmful for countries in the global south, of whom agriculture is often the largest sector of their economy. As much as 60% of their populations are rural, like small farmers make up these countries and they're passing these laws that directly threaten them and their livelihood, not to mention the climate. This issue kind of subverts traditional hierarchies about um, sustainability and development. And I think we're really often taught to think of the global north as kind of the champions of sustainability. And there's a lot of rhetoric, even in the recent COP26, about like helping the global south transition to cleaner energy sources and helping them along the way to become more sustainable and this is an area in which essentially the opposite is true and that's something that i think is really important to consider going forward and we really have to kind of rethink whose lead we should be following and it also kind of helps explain why climate issues are sometimes so difficult to fight against because like you have the UN, you have sustainable development goals, you have um, the environment and human rights, but then you have the World Trade Organization and the trade system, which is often like doing its own thing and gets away with kind of sliding a lot of policies under the radar that then don't get a lot of awareness. Listening to you both, it really strikes me how multifaceted all those issues are that you're talking about, how different systems elements come together um, in those issues, but also in some of the some of the solutions that you have uh, generated through your work that you have proposed in your work. We have spoken about some of those challenges, but I wanted to ask you about the importance. Do you think it is important that researchers, academics, do make all efforts to make their research more accessible. Yeah, massively. I mean, I really appreciate, as, as Isabella said, I really appreciated the practice of doing this and making my my research uh, more more digestible by the w wider audience, partially because it meant that more people were aware of what I was doing and more people understood. Like, because an undergraduate dissertation, no one really reads it. You've put all this hard work and like effort into creating this work and you're so proud of it. And no one really gets to see what the outcomes are and creating this short three minute presentation. I mean, loads of my friends knew what I was doing as a result. Loads of my my parents, friends, like family. And they were all like, wow, this is amazing. And it's something that that you wouldn't necessarily get from a quick conversation with them because you haven't really thought it through and and you're trying to explain it but people just kind of shut down when any any word comes up that they don't recognize so being able to kind of think that through and create those three minutes and share it so publicly was I like I really appreciated that um, because of all the hard work I put into it. it was nice that that people were understanding it and and realizing why why these things were so important and hopefully to kind of further the research. It's sort of like a policy brief in, in these long documents that people do, making it so change can actually happen from this without people getting bogged down in the details. Um, and I think it's important on, on kind of every scale within research. It's like an abstract, but it needs to be, it needs to be in simpler terminology so it can be understood by a greater audience. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's that double-barreled idea. I think it's also worth mentioning that for every abstract or a policy brief or a three-minute presentation is actually underpinned by by so much work and so mm -hmm. much detailed research and it's yeah. building this whole knowledge base and, and database of evidence digesting it in order to be able to prepare something as brief as three minutes yeah. and, and yet still impactful 
The one side thing that was like simply not content, but my voice. And as James was saying, how he has to get his podcast voice ready. I worked so hard to get my voice ready for this three minute presentation because so often when I'm explaining things, I find myself like when I pick up the phone, I go, oh, hi there. And I raise my voice and it sounds patronizing, even though it's not. And so I really had to like lower my voice, go slower, really try and act like I was speaking to someone and explaining something rather than simply trying to present something like that kind of that kind of idea. My voice was one of the as well as content was one of the things I really kept having to re-record and retry. Um, because I, I wanted to kind of make that effort for it to feel like the audience was within that kind of explanatory conversation and not like they were getting talked at, if that makes sense. That's so true. I like I had to work so hard as well to get like, again, you're not just talking at someone, you're talking to someone. A lot of the time when I'd be doing academic presentations, like in school, you would be like capped at a time limit as well. But of course, because you were being marked according to a rubric, you'd be stuck trying to pack in as much content as is humanly possible into that time limit. And you were just talking to your teacher who was marking you. So you didn't have to worry about making like a meaningful impact. And so I'd gotten into this very bad habit of talking as quickly as possible when doing these presentations. So I really had to work at slowing down my speech and reminding myself that you're aiming to connect with people, not fulfill some some marked rubric. But I guess in reference to the original question, it was such a rewarding process to be able to feel like my work, you know, junior as it was, was getting through to people in a way that, you know, it wasn't just me who cared about it, but I was able to convince people in my community to care about it as well. It definitely beat boring my relatives at the Christmas table and everything that had happened before that. But even more broadly, in terms of whether I think academics should make more of an effort to make their content accessible, I think it's so important at all levels of academia to kind of keep in mind you know, you're doing this research, but what is it for? Like, are are you doing this research and studying these things because you want to contribute towards making the world a better place? Or is it that you want to be in this echo chamber full of academics that, you know, agree with you or operate in similar circles? Um, and it's so important to keep in mind that in, in all fields, really, the vast majority of people that are going to be impacted by the very things that you research and study are not academics, and they deserve to know what it is you're saying about how their lives might be changed. I think that's a really valuable point, especially right now. If we, we look at the world around us where anti-intellectualism is like a, a serious threat to, right now, public health. But um, just to, across the board it is an issue that we as, as a society are dealing with more and more. And I think the only way to combat that is to, for academics in particular, to engage, engage more than they have, in, especially in the recent past. And it's not even necessarily about meeting people halfway because, I mean, a lot of us academics are... Uh, forget that most people aren't only not that interested in what we do necessarily. They haven't spent five, six, eight, ten years involved in the conversations that we've been involved with. And therefore, we need to make more of an effort to include people who aren't experts in these conversations, who may or may not know that they ought to be interested in these conversations. So it's not, not about meeting people halfway. It's about going even further so that the next time they'll be able to to come with you, as it were. I think you're making a really important point there, James, that, that part of the kind of academics role is to bring things to people's attention, things that people might have dismissed as unimportant or, or not have had much awareness of knowledge of. And this is kind of actually, you should be thinking about this. You should be aware of this. You you should reflect on how those issues affect you personally, affect the world that, that you and, and we live in. And I know certainly my own research is 
there, there's two aspects to it. One is about bringing those conversations, engaging others in those conversations, sometimes challenging people's perspectives to think about it in different ways. But it also has an effect on me. Every research project that I do tends to shift my perspective and give, give me new awareness and, and new, new knowledge and understanding of issues. And I was wondering whether you share that kind of process and whether the research that you have done for your dissertations or throughout your undergraduate degrees, your undergraduate careers, has that changed your perspectives on climate change and sustainability? I would say that it it definitely has. I think both pessimistically and optimistically. I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but something that I uncovered that was frustrating about my research is that you know, when you see Greta Thunberg saying, you know, it's all just blah, 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 like there's never any real change that comes from this. And I agree wholeheartedly. But what I also realize is that it's so often just not that easy because there are so many, like climate change and sustainability spans so many areas and so many, you know, competing interest groups. It's not just the singular issue that's limited to climate and sustainability. And so, sometimes well this it really made me realize that these things are not that easy to unravel it doesn't mean that it's impossible but i think we have to look at it a little bit differently um and i think that's why this competition was so valuable like there were people who entered from chemistry philosophy ir geography and because all these fields had something to say about it and even beyond academia um vacations and trades as well like my dissertation was partially informed by talking with my grandfather who came from a farming family and had been a farmer all his life he's 92 and so he was able to tell me exactly how these kinds of of laws had shaped the way that his family's farm conducted itself through the decades. And that's something I think people should be asking more of. And I kind of saw myself as partially speaking on his behalf. So I think my my research really hammered home the idea that nature and the earth are integral to mitigate climate change and, and reverse what we what we as humans have have done to the planet and it's not just a human response that we need david attenborough said it really well like he said individually we managed to kind of break down the earth together we should be able to fix it and i think it's it's not just together as governments as nations it's together as as working with the planet as well earth will come back no matter whether or not we are here to see that happen. It has this regenerative power. Nature itself is so powerful. Humans being able to harness that is a massive key to solving this problem. And yeah, my my research into fears is a, is a tiny part of that. There's so many different parts of, of earth and the world that can that can come together and be the solution and I think it just shows that it needs to be that collaborative effort between all these forces. So then given that you've kind of gone through these re- this research process how do you think these changes in perspective uh, have affected your own personal choices and behaviors or future plans even? I think I've always had a drive to be more sustainable myself and I'm always looking for for the more sustainable option in my home in my activity um in things that I do and, and unfortunately being a very international student and person I've had to fly a lot to get to university and things like that. And that's been one of the hardest things that I've had to battle with coming from America over to the UK um, for university. And I do that by finding other areas in my life to become less wasteful and to be more active within within the sphere of climate change. And in, in my personal life, I, I strive to to purchase less, purchase more thoughtfully, recycle more, don't feed into that consumerist culture, things like that. But also um, going on into into the 
the job world. I'm going into active travel um, uh, as a transport planner in a company called Stantec. And I'm really excited to, I haven't started yet, but I'm starting come the new year. And I'm really excited to delve into that sphere of work it's, it's based in Glasgow and it, it's specifically working on kind of retrofitting Scottish, uh, the UK urban environments, but specifically Glasgow into becoming more focused on more active travel in the space and encouraging that behaviour change within its city by making the infrastructure for it. One of the biggest things about behavior change is if you provide this kind of beautiful environment, people will start start to use these things. So I'm I'm very excited to to be able to um, rethink the way urban environments are constructed and make it easier for people to cycle or walk because um, that's what active travel is. That sounds very exciting. I particularly like what you're saying that is about, you know, making changes in ourselves, but also maybe finding ways like in your case to to help other people make those changes. And this can be done either through through research, through conversations, through that knowledge exchange, or it can be through creating those environments where, where the response, you know, adjusts that, that behavior in a way that it becomes more, more sustainable. How about you, Isabella? I agree with Georgina about statements that she expressed earlier, um, especially about, you know, when you live this kind of international student life and you're flying back and forth to university. Um, I'm from Canada, so travel to and from St. Andrews did require air travel as much as I would have liked to find an alternative. And I've also tried to try my best to compensate for that in other aspects of my life. I hear this a lot from people that it's it's easy to fall into that pessimistic kind of view that, you know, most of emissions are, like carbon emissions are committed by the same small number of corporations. Like it doesn't matter what you do as an individual because the biggest perpetrators of climate catastrophe aren't individuals. But I, I still don't think that that's altogether an excuse not to try your best to consume ethically to, to the best of your ability and in keeping with resources available. My research especially made me very conscious of food and the kind of food that I consume. Um, I'm fortunate to live in an area that's in very close proximity to farmland, small farmland, proper small farmers. And I'm, I was convincing my family to stop shopping at big box grocery stores and buy our groceries from the small farm markets that you can find when you just drive a few minutes more down the road or a cycle as we've been trying to do as well um, and that's something that i've definitely been trying to convince people to do more but it's also it's also hard in these conversations i've had with other family members of how of course you know organic ethically locally produced food is of course always much more expensive those kind of barriers exist and that's a whole other web of legal and trade things to investigate in terms of my kind of professional goals and aspirations, I'm currently hoping to do my master's next year. I'm applying right now. My dissertation, the things that I uncovered, namely about how these kind of high-flying international agreements are in fact really strongly shaped by domestic politics within countries and how international change really does start from from the ground up. It's not really imposed in a top-down way. And because of that, I'm going to study, or I hope to study something like comparative government or comparative politics rather than international relations in order to kind of keep finding out what makes it easier for some countries to legislate for sustainability, support small farmers, and other things like that and why is it harder for other ones and what can we change about those dynamics to try and make it better going forward just one thing off off what you said as well the the conversation of like it's brought up so often that we ourselves don't have the power it's it's these big emitters we have to leverage governments to change like policies or tax or whatnot to to put the pressure on the on these big emitters but 
But I think as you as you were saying, we as individuals do have power and a lot of that power comes from the power of choice because as individuals, we are consumers. And if we as consumers start to change our ways, the producers will notice um, because for them, it's largely based on kind of profit and economics behind it. So if they see their consumers shifting to sort of either buying from like smaller farmers and they're losing some of that commission you see that shift i mean it has to be in large numbers but if if the people that can who are privileged enough to be able to buy from those from the or organic or the smaller smaller farmers do then it starts to cause this domino effect so we do actually have lots of lots of power as a consumer, as an individual, um, to shift those those big businesses, which I think is important to to note as well. So, uh, Isabel, you actually you brought this up with uh, Greta Thunberg's blah, blah, blah speech. And as we said, prior to and, and during COP26, uh, a lot of le- leading youth activists in particular expressed their lack of faith in current mechanisms being used to address climate change. We've in the past had the co-founder of Scientist Rebellion on this podcast who has himself actively pushed for a complete systemic change and suggested that that's the only way to solve the current climate crisis. Basically, his hypothesis was that the system that we currently work within is completely broken and, and unable to solve this crisis that we're facing. What is your general feeling uh, on on this? I, I worry that I've come across as a bit too pessimistic during this conversation. I, I'm not. However, I think in response to that question, I'm not feeling thrillingly optimistic ab- about recent developments or about the current kind of power structures. Um, I think a lot of things are deeply embedded and that the people making those decisions are also a bit too embedded to commit to real change. Um, At least in regards to agriculture, the impression that I got from COP26, this past one, was that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looked like um, a lot of the world's most wealthy countries had pledged a lot of funding to search for sustainable alternatives to agriculture and are including a lot of agriculture's major players in the conversations around that. And when I read that, I thought that was quite ironic because, as we know by now, and a sustainable alternative really, it, it already does exist in, in small-scale farming, and that's being ignored and it's still being actively undermined by the same players that are now getting to help craft these new sustainable alternatives. Um, it, it, like, it looks very much like they're trying to avoid systemic change and rely on kind of incremental adjustments that keep these same power structures. Um, and that's a trend that I see very often. And that's something that I would consider a pretty fundamental generational divide, at least like, let me know if you agree with this, Georgina. But I think a lot of younger people are willing to commit to systemic change um, in a lot greater numbers than previous generations. Like we, we know that nothing is fixed. And, you know, to search for big solutions, we need to make some some major changes. Absolutely. I mean, young people are are so much better. At, well, not better. I shouldn't say that. Um, people who have lived lived a certain way for the majority of their lives, it's harder to make that switch. Um, so I think as young people, we have that advantage to say no. It doesn't have to be like this. So yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. I would like to say I'm a little more optimistic than you coming out of COP twenty six. And I'm encouraged by by what I've seen with the kind of deforestation bill, which is which is focused on nature based solutions and kind of a lot of countries committing to net zero by 2030. But what's the the result of COP26, the, the commitments that people have made don't actually meet where we need to be to to stop the the temperature rise to to 1.5 which is the ultimate aim so it's not enough as you say there isn't enough change it's it's too incremental still 
it's hard to know whether whether to be hugely critical yet because obviously we're not going to see the whole idea of blah 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 it's all blah 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 not action you can't really criticize on that yet it, it it is about seeing if this action comes to fruition now and seeing if we've actually as nations learned from our mistakes um and the hope is that we have it is a start um and i think people just have to know that that it that it's only a start and that there is still a long way to go and it's encouraging that that, that within the this agreement countries have to go back and improve their commitments every year and it used to be on the five-year scale but now that's happening every year so that's super encouraging so hopefully this is only the start of the conversation and it will create that that spiraling conversation a domino effect for people to to improve their commitments as time goes on um, i really agree that even though it might be blah 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 right now that's because this is about looking towards the future so we'll just we'll have to see i think that's a very valid point and you both brought up uh, and i suppose we have triggered it a little bit with with the three minute planet competition and with this podcast where we do highlight the the youth voices in conversations about sustainability and climate change when we celebrate some of the research done by by young people like yourselves targeting those really complex and difficult and yet critical to resolve challenges so you both have touched on it, but I would like to ask, what do you think is the role of young people in driving that change that you both say is, is needed? And I think there is a shared agreement that things need to change. What is the role for young people in that process? I think, and what has sort of been seen is in COP26 is that young people are the are almost the igniters of this change. I was at the uh, Fridays for Future March um, that happened in Glasgow uh, a couple weeks ago. And it was so amazing to see all those youth voices, lots of school kids. There were parents who had brought their young children out somewhere about, I think it was like 25,000 people or something marching down those streets. And it was so empowering to see that collective passion for change among the youth, which I don't think we've seen as much previously. It's really coming coming to a head right now. It's creating this whole new voice, which I think we've never had before, and it still isn't considered enough. As, as a lot of the youth climate activists were saying, where were the youth voices within COP26? We saw them, we saw them outside of it, and there was, there was a massive prevalence of youth voices all over on social media in present there protesting elsewhere it it was a huge movement which was really inspirational but that that voice hasn't been considered enough by those by those politicians yet but it's it's happening it's changing and i think one of the biggest things is to continue these these gatherings of people creating that bigger voice keep doing these protests and i i think it really makes a massive impact i mean you can do it in loads of loads of ways within can be more sustainable within your own lives as as a youth activist and and share it with your friends and family you can volunteer with like societies and groups like as as we've done at university you can do it within your own research, within your own job as you get older. But that simply, some, one of the most powerful things to do when you're younger is simply gather together and make your voice heard. The more people that do it, the more impact it will make. There's a long way to go, but it, it, was, it was really powerful to see that happening. That is one thing that's been so inspiring just to see, not even in, in our own age group, as you said, but in younger generations as well. Um, the amount of you know kids I see that are being brought up with these ideals and are so filled with idealism and values of activism. It's really great to see. That said, I also am really optimistic about the role that young people are starting to play in terms of advocating for global issues. Um, 
This isn't directly related to climate and sustainability, but something that I'm involved with this year is a program here in Canada called Girls on Boards. And it's an organization that partners with nonprofit organizations across Canada, often like very large, prominent nationwide charities who agree to offer one or even more um, seats on their board of directors to a young female or gender diverse leader or activist. Um, and I'm going to be one of the young directors this year. And I remember telling someone in a generation above me about it. And they said, oh, well, it's so nice that these these organizations are letting you sit in on their board meetings. And I said, no, no, I'm not sitting in on the board meetings. I'm sitting on the board with, with a vote that will count as much um, as any middle-aged man sitting next to me. And I think it's it's such a, a big step and an example of organizations really practicing what they preach. They're realizing that it, it actually is valuable to offer up one of their voting seats on their board of directors to a young person, because even though we might lack that lived experience, it's not a less valuable perspective. It's just a different one. And in many ways, youth's perspective, as Georgina said, that they're the ones who are willing to really commit and to push for systemic overhaul and change because they haven't, like we haven't been entrenched in these systems for as long. And we have the idealism to really believe that those kinds of changes can be made. Through this program, we've um, I've sat in on master classes that kind of advance these ideas more broadly, and we've had people join us from municipal governments in Mexico who are looking to include youth representatives in their governance um, and organizations as far away as Nigeria and Ghana. And I think there really is this widespread movement of valuing youth perspectives more than just as something symbolic. And so I do have a lot of hope that this is going to take hold and, you know, one day youth representatives aren't going to be standing outside the building while the grown-ups make decisions, that there's going to be youth delegates in there with the policymakers and that their perspectives are going to be, you know, valid ones. I mean, that, that does sound like a, a wonderful project because anytime you can increase the amount of diversity in and around any kind of table i think that's a, a wonderful opportunity and, and youth is something that is not really talked about in terms of that diverse opinion as much as it probably should so so yeah that's a, a wonderful initiative thanks for, for bringing that to our attention i think at least some of the partner organizations are environmental advocacy ones as well I'd like to thank you both for, for making the time to be on this special episode of the all about energy podcast it's uh, something slightly different than what we normally do, but as has been brought up a couple of times in this conversation, it's important to have diversity and it's important to, even on things like this, in include uh, the youth voice a little bit more because um, I mean, you are the future experts in climate change and sustainability. So I'd like to thank you both for, for making the time for us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Uh, thank you. This has been a wonderful experience. Well, Emilka, it was really nice to have two guests on who are both passionate about the work that they're doing. It has been absolutely fantastic. Such a pleasure to talk to Georgina and Isabella and such a pleasure to talk to our students in general. I think at the university, sometimes we have a tendency to overlook the research work done by our students, focusing on their learning journeys. But actually, what the Three Minute Planet competition has shown is just how much interesting ideas, interesting research and great knowledge our honor students have and can bring to the table and to the conversations aimed at addressing some of the critical challenges facing us today, such as climate change. Yeah, and I think one thing that was really highlighted in that interview was the need for more communication, both between academics and the rest of the world, but also between researchers and other levels of, of people involved in research, because that's who goes out to become leaders in business uh, and government and, and things like that. So I'm glad that we were allowed to, to open up our platform, and I'm glad that we chose to uh, get Georgina and Isabella involved. 
Absolutely. And I'm also very grateful to them and to all the students who decided to apply to the Three Minute Planet competition when we first announced it last year. I think there is a level of bravery that is required to stand up and talk about your research for three minutes, knowing you're being judged on it because it is a competition and knowing that you're also not using the kind of language, the kind of platform that we are used to in academia, that you're trying to engage those wider audiences engage people who might not normally have thought about certain issues, who might not have considered them, and to demonstrate to them actually those issues are critically important and they should be talked about and thought about, not only at universities, in research centres, not only in the policy rooms, but in general by members of the public, because they affect every area of our lives today. Precisely, precisely, and exactly what we wanted to get out of this episode. And uh, with that, I, I think it's time to just about wrap things up. Emilka, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? I would. I think it's the perfect opportunity to announce that the Three Minute Planet competition will be making its return in 2022. We will be announcing another call to University of St. Andrews Honours students from across disciplines working on issues of climate change, energy and sustainability. So please do watch this space, do keep an eye on our website, do register for the Centre for Energy Ethics newsletter so that you don't miss when this announcement gets live. And I, for one, am already very excited at the prospect of engaging with our students and seeing what they are working on at the moment. I'm sure it will be some very, very interesting stuff. No, absolutely. If last year is anything to go by. In more wider Centre for Energy Ethics news, of course, we had a very busy month towards the end of October and through November. Things are finally starting to settle down. Though one thing that did happen over the course of that is the launch of the brand new revamped Art of Energy Gallery. Now we have two brand new exhibits that have just been released for that. So even if you checked it out earlier in the year, do go check it out again. We've got three buildings now in this virtual space. A lovely day-night cycle that you can explore in your own time from the comfort of your own living room. So do go check out the, the new Art of Energy Galleries. I'll provide the link on the podcast page over on the Center for Energy Ethics website. But you can also find it straight from our homepage now because I've had a bit of a facelift over there. Things look a little different. We hope you enjoy that. Well, I guess all that remains is for me to thank my co-host, Emilka. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, of course, we'll have you back sometime soon, I hope. Already looking forward to it. Brilliant. Well, thanks everyone else for listening. We hope you hear from us soon. Bye.